This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. When you're tuning across the HF bands, you may occasionally stumble across a rather wide signal that sounds, well, like this. What you're hearing is Digital Radio Mondial, better known as DRM. It's the shortwave broadcasting answer to the onslaught of the Internet. When received properly, well, a DRM signal is crystal clear. It really is. You can listen to music without the distortion of static and all the selective fading and everything else that comes with analog AM shortwave. The DRM signal often includes a separate channel for text such as uh, news headlines and even some small images. DRM is not new. It was launched more than 10 years ago, in fact about 18 years ago, in a bid to rescue the decline of the shortwave broadcasting industry. But as it turned out, DRM was too little too late. Only a few broadcasters adopted it, and they quickly discovered that there weren't a lot of DRM shortwave receivers being sold. Today, there are only a handful of shortwave outlets that occasionally transmit DRM, such as the one you just heard. It's a situation that reminds me a lot of AM stereo. Remember that? I can hear some listeners saying, Stereo? On AM? Are you kidding? Really? Back in the 1980s, the automobile I owned had a radio capable of receiving AM stereo, and it sounded remarkably good at the time, at least compared to FM. But once again, it was too little, too late. FM had already won the radio wars by that time, at least for music listeners. AM stereo was just too late to the party. The situation was made even worse by the fact that the FCC refused to choose between the two competing AM stereo standards, CON and Motorola CQAM. Let the market decide, they said. Well, that was a huge mistake. The marketplace responded with a big yawn, and it refused to decide, and most radio manufacturers said, thanks, but no thanks. So what does all this have to do with DRM? Well, while DRM is on its last legs in the shortwave world, it's been successful in domestic broadcast markets in places like Brazil and India. Many folks in those countries are listening to DRM on their AM broadcast bands these days, and it's showing up on FM as well. Here in the States, when it came to digital radio, the FCC decided not to repeat its AM stereo mistake. Good for them. A number of years ago, it chose a standard called in-band on-channel, or IBOC. So-called HD radio has been slow to catch on in the U.S., however, but it's picking up some audiences among some analog FM stations that have added HD, sometimes with multiple channels. There's an FM station near me that broadcasts classic rock on analog, as well as its main digital channel, but on its secondary and tertiary digital channels, it's broadcasting sports talk and country western music. IBOC on the AM band has been disappointing, however. 
The digital components of the signal tend to be at a much lower power level, so the signal frequently flip-flops between digital and analog, especially if you're listening on the road, you know, as you go in and out of valleys and in between buildings. Take it from me, the effect is highly annoying. The FCC is well aware of the discontent, so they've indicated they might consider a replacement. And guess who is petitioning the FCC for some testing? Yep, DRM. They're asking for tests that would include the option for simulcast operation alongside analog AM signals from the same transmitter. Quoting from their petition here, In 2020, this is possible since the innovation level, the all-standard chipset, and automotive capabilities have evolved enormously. This would also answer the question on the benefits and its attractiveness when compared to and introduced alongside HD radio. Unquote. DRM is also saying that their system uses 40 to 50% less power, and that's a major cost factor for broadcasters. When I recorded this podcast, the FCC had yet to respond. They're under a fair amount of pressure from AM broadcasters, though, because they're looking for a way to lure away FM listeners. Many of them have stated that they want to go digital as soon as reasonably possible. I'll be curious to see if the FCC opens the door to testing for DRM. Xperi Corporation, which owns the rights to IBOC, would be none too happy. They have a virtual monopoly on digital radio broadcasting in the United States, and they'd like to keep it that way. We'll see. Of course, we all know that all over-the-air television signals in the United States are strictly digital and have been for many years, right? Well, you may be surprised to learn that that statement is actually wrong, at least for now. There are a number of low-power analog TV stations still on the air, mostly clustered around major metropolitan areas. Well, the days of those stations are now officially numbered. The Federal Communications Commission has announced that analog low-power TV stations must convert to digital or go off the air by 11.59 p.m. local time on July 13th of this year, so just a few weeks from when this podcast was recorded. Even stations that intended to go digital, and maybe they've started construction to do so, must still go dark until the conversion is complete. Now, what's particularly interesting about this situation is that many low-power television stations on Channel 6 have been using the so-called analog loophole to operate FM stations on 87.7 MHz. These are perfectly legal stations, such as WRME-LP in Chicago and WPGF-LP in Memphis, just to name a few. But again, the FCC wants all analog signals to disappear from that spectrum between 82 and 88 MHz on July 13th. So if you watch or listen to any of these analog signals, you might want to make recordings now, just for historical value. Because when you awaken on the morning of July 14th, they'll be gone. I'm speaking with John Stanley, K4ERO. John's a engineer longstanding and a published author of uh, a number of articles. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon. Good to hear, hear you uh, this afternoon. John, on Page 56, specifically, in the June 2021 issue of QSD Magazine, you have an article with an interesting title, 
And the title is Rising Sunspot Numbers, It's Not All Good News. Well, this is the beginning of cycle 25 that people have been waiting for forever, John. How could it not be good news? (laughs) Well, I would have to say that overall, it certainly is good news. But, you know, even with the the best of things, sometimes there is a I, let's say every 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 uh, silver lining has a cloud. Yes. <laughs> so so uh, there are some things about the higher numbers that are, are probably uh, a negative, and uh, so that's that's what this article is trying to uh, to deal with is that uh, along with all of the good news, there is some that's not so good. And who is it not so good for specifically? Well, it's not so good for people who operate daytime um, on the lower bands. Uh, just about everybody else will get a, a you know a plus, but uh, for people who are in the habit of operating, let's say uh, from 40 meters uh, uh, down in frequency to uh, you know 60 meters, 80 meters, uh, uh, the daytime propagation will be less advantageous than it has been during these several years we've had of low sunspot numbers. If I understood your article correctly, John, for example. Many times on 40 meters, I'll make contact with friends back in Ohio from here in Connecticut. Now, that's roughly five, 600 miles. Right. Your, your article seems to imply that when we reach the peak of cycle 25 and roughly 2025, 2026, I may not be able to reliably make that path. Is, is that accurate? Yes, that's correct. Uh, looking at the, uh, one of the graphs that are there, the uh, the maximum distance that you can cover in 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 the daytime on 40 meters will definitely shorten up as the uh, as the numbers go higher. And why is that? What's the mechanism behind that? Well, it, it's it has to do mainly with the E layer, which layer that people don't think very much about in ham radio unless they're talking about sporadic E. Sporadic E is something that, uh, as it, you might guess, happens sporadically. <laughs> a, lo- a lot of ionization in the E layer. And it can cause uh, openings on six meters, ten meters, and so forth, which are all all to the good. But every day, the E layer, uh, the regular E layer, not sporadic E, but the regular E layer, uh, builds up, and uh, it's very predictable. It's uh, unlike the F layer, which can vary a lot from day to day. The E layer is very predictable, and when it gets over ionized. It gets thick enough that it blocks the lower angle signals that are trying to go through it to get to the F layer. And it's those lower angle signals that you would want to get from Connecticut out to Ohio. Not extremely low angles, but, you know, reasonably low angles. And uh, once the E layer blocks those, then you have to either go uh, at, a, at a very low angle to, via the E layer, which means you're going through the D layer at a very uh, uh, oblique angle or else you have to go two hops via the F layer. Either one of those things will increase the loss on that path by a very significant amount. And that's why uh, if you look at the curves that are in the article, it's almost like you hit a brick wall when you get to a certain distance. And uh, there's just very little you can do to get past that very, very sharp drop-off in the maximum distance that you can cover with with a strong signal. No, I see what you mean. So in other words, uh, <laughs> I will uh, not have as many options here in, say, what, four or five years for uh, talking to my buddies back in Ohio. That's right. You'll have probably have to go to a higher band. And uh, if, you're not, if, it's a, if it's a phone uh, contact, you can't 
30 meters because that's a CW only band or digital only. Uh, if you want to have a phone contact, you'll have to go to 20 meters. And that's, uh, that's just about the only option you'll have at that time of day. Now, of course, you can go earlier in the day or later in the day and uh, when the e-layer is not so strong. But if you're going to continue to have a midday uh, QSO with those people, uh, you're, yeah, the 40 meters will not reach as far as it is doing now. What about, and if we're talking about 40 meters, we'll, we'll leave it on that band for the moment. What about nighttime, John? Uh, how is it affected then? Well, in the nighttime, both the D and the E layer decay almost completely. And so the, the this uh, issue that we have with the higher numbers making thicker layers is not uh, really a problem after dark, except that just after dark, you can see this in one of the figures in my article too, uh, when it's uh, when if you look at figure one, it shows that even just even after dark, there is somewhat more attenuation on, uh, for example, 80 meters that's left over. But that's uh, that that de- that decays away pretty quickly. So nighttime is not so much of a concern. We're mainly talking about problems that will occur with this excessive amount of absorption in the D layer and blocking by the E layer, which will occur during the daylight hours. And what about uh, DX on 160 meters, John? Will that be uh, impacted as we get near the peak of the solar cycle? I have never been a huge DXer on 160. I have worked some uh, 160 DX from Ecuador, and I did that in the evenings. But that was only uh, for brief periods, and it wasn't long enough to have a long history of the difference between the high and and low spots. I flew that idea by a, a good friend of mine, who's a big 160-meter uh, operator, and uh, he indicated that uh, 160 is a very unpredictable band. <laughs> there was, there's a lot about the propagation on that band that we just do not understand. And so there are some good things that happen, and there's some bad things that happen. Of course, the DXing on the 160 is a nighttime phenomenon, or at least a gray line phenomenon. And uh, so we were not able to come to a real clear uh, uh, determination of whether to look for better or worse propagation as the sunspots go up. Uh, My impression would be that you're going to have to stick closer to the nighttime paths. Uh, With low sunspots, you can can do some work on 160 uh, into an hour after daylight and an hour before sunset. By the way, you know, uh, the closest thing that we can listen to uh, on a e- easily to monitor that is the top end of the uh, broadcast, AM broadcast band. That's true. And I have been very amazed uh, during the last few winters, particularly, how, how strong the AM, uh, uh, distant AM stations remain after sunrise from fairly distant places. There's a station I've listened to in Cincinnati and uh, others in uh, uh, New York, and you know, long enough to be considered D- DX on the AM band, and uh, it's remarkable that you can still hear them several hours after sun after sunrise, and that will absolutely not happen uh, once we get into the high sunspot numbers. When the sun is pops up, those those things will fade very very quickly. I can imagine. Well, if you're an aficionado of the low bands, 40 meters and down. Do you have any advice for those folks, what uh, they might do to mitigate some of this, or do they just have to live with it? Um, well, I, one, one piece of advice would be this. As the, as the uh, signal strengths go down, the noise will also go down. But for a lot of amateurs, that is not an issue because they're not limited by band noise. They're limited by man-made local noise. So uh, if you will do everything you possibly can to eliminate all of the noise in your shack, 
or in your neighborhood, uh, whether it be power poles or wall warts or uh, switching power supplies, uh, as the signals get weaker, the noise will also get weaker that's coming from the sky. But in, unless you're, uh, you're, you know, your man-made noise will not get any weaker. So you won't, you won't be aware of that. Um, I, I have a very quiet location here. And I have been able to work 160 meters in, in, at midday with a station 65 miles away. And I know that it's partly skywave because I pick, up, pick that up with the fading. But that's only because we have extremely quiet locations. And the average person with a, you know, a S5 or 6 or 7 noise level from man-made junk, they just will not be able to take advantage of that. So clean up your, uh, clean up your local noise if you possibly can. And, of course, that's good any time <laughs> to do that, but particularly if you're trying to work the low bands uh, into the daylight hours a little, a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And I, I have a eh, reasonable amount of local noise that I do here on 40 meters. Uh, but is it my imagination, John, uh, 40 meters for me sometimes seems noisier during the summer months? Is that true or is that just me? Well, if you're talking about static noise now, it definitely is, uh, and uh, because for, you know any 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 storm within uh, uh, hundreds of miles, even five six hundred miles, if there's a strong uh, strong thunderstorm activity from here in the, uh, in the Chattanooga area, uh, I can hear on those bands. I can hear storms that are down in the Gulf, you know, and uh, if South Florida or South Texas has got thunderstorms, I can hear it on 40 meters during the summertime. And, of course, most of those storms go away in the winter. So definitely that kind of noise is more in the, in the, in the summertime, that's for sure. So the peak of cycle 25 isn't necessarily sunshine and flowers for everyone, especially those who really enjoy 40 and 80 meters. But for the rest of us who are looking forward to 10 meters being really active again and all that, it's still something we're celebrating, right? Absolutely, and uh, even six meters. I, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at the sixteen meter, the six meter. I'm sorry, the six meter PSK map right now, uh, PSK reporter map. And uh, even as we speak, uh, uh, the Europeans are working the Caribbean on six meters. Uh, now, what is that? It's not. It, I don't think it's F two. Uh, it's probably some sporadic E and and transequatorial and. So those high bands are going to be absolutely fantastic, particularly now that we've got modes that can work further down into the noise, like uh, FT8. Uh, but uh, uh, do do what you can now, and uh, as things get better and better, you'll be ready for that also. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, John. Well, it's been my pleasure. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.